Oh, good morning, everyone. We're going to read in Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. I'm sorry. Thank you for standing. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. They dwelt there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and make them thoroughly. They had brick from stone, and they had asphalt from mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the uh, sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have all one language, and this is why they begin... they begin to do now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them come let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech so the lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, of all the earth and they ceased building the city therefore its name is called babel or babel because the lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. And this morning, I was wanting to look at the biblical account of the Tower of Babel, which is contained in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, which Brent had just read for us. And I hope by the message this morning uh, that I can encourage you, that I can edify you, I can strengthen your faith and your hope in Christ and his sovereignty over all things. Well, in recent years, a new movement, and really it's not a new movement because according to Solomon in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, but it's new to us in a sense, and it's emerged out of California, Silicon Valley, uh, basically out of the high-tech industries out there, and it's a movement known as transhumanism. Is anyone familiar with that or heard of that term? Well, those devoted uh, to the movement uh, see the human body as a a work in progress. And they believe that evolution took humanity this far, up to this point, and only technology will take humanity further. Well, as for sickness and aging and death, Uh, Adherents call all three of those things unnecessary hindrances that we have the right and the responsibility to overcome. And they believe that our frail bodies are just another problem to be solved through science and technology. And the goal of this transhumanism movement is to transcend and overcome all human limitations. They believe that the body is just simply a machine and the brain is nothing more than a computer. Yet they deny God's existence for the most part. They believe in random chance and combined with time, evolutionary processes, and at the same time as they say that our bodies are machines and our brains are just simply computers, please show me then any machine or computer that has ever just assembled itself without a design and a creator. Well, 
With the help of rapidly advancing technology, man believes that they can simply be upgraded with the latest software, if you will. And in the near future, they hope to use what's called nanotechnology. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, to repair failed organs and dying cells within our body. They are convinced that once the technology is in place, the modern-day fountain of youth will have finally been discovered and death will cease to exist. Well, cybernetic implants will greatly augment human intelligence. And if you're interested in this and want to find out from their own words what they're saying and what their view of the future is, their vision for all of us, you can simply go to the Neuralink website. That was founded by Elon Musk. And they'll say right there their effort is to interface humans and computers, to basically make us cyborgs, a combination of man and machine. And according to the transhumanist, all the world's common diseases, they're going to be cured by 2030. So if you can hold on a few more years, they're going to have a cure for you. And then by 2040... They're going to see the rise of artificial intelligence, AI, that is a thousands of times smarter than all humanity combined. And again, if you've ever, has anyone heard of Boston Dynamics? Came out of MIT? Go and look at their website and some of those robots they've got. You know, the, the robot soldiers uh, with art, armed with artificial intelligence. It's, it's right out of the Terminator movies. And, you know, as they say, movies are not entertainment. They're just simply documentaries. <laughs> you know, you think of movies like The Matrix. You think of The Truman Show. Uh, all these type of things have that vision of the future portrayed for us. Well, the overwhelming majority of the transhumanists are atheists. Transhumanism is just the latest in a series of challenges to God's sovereign kingship over his creation. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> This is just the latest form of it. And if you will, the nature of man has not changed since the fall. We know Cain and Abel where a man used to pick up a stone or a stick and kill his neighbor. He just does it now with technology from thousands and thousands of miles away. Well, as we make our way into Genesis chapter 11, let me give you just a little bit of context because we come from that historical, grammatical, uh, contextual hermeneutic in order to understand and apply the scripture to our lives. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, there through chapter 2 up to verse 3, we've got the creation of all things that God has created. All things are created by him, and through him nothing came into existence that does exist. And then, of course, we've got the fall of man into sin. That occurs in Genesis beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, through Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Then, of course, as I just mentioned, you've got Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. You've got Adam's descendants from Genesis 5 through 6, 8. And then we come Genesis 6, 9 through 9, 17. You've got Noah and the flood where God destroyed the earth except for eight people. He destroyed everything because of the man's wickedness with a worldwide flood. 
And after that flood, and it killed off everything, except for how many people were left? We got eight. We had Noah, he got his family, and he got the creatures on the ark. And just a little bit of a side note, uh, how long did Noah preach, if you recall? 120 years. He forewarned the people. God's grace warning them of what the judgment that was coming. How many people were saved? Eight. You know, from our human way of thinking, that's not a very successful 120-year ministry with only eight people being saved. But the issue was not the numbers. The issue was that Noah was faithful to what God had told him to do, and he proclaimed the truth that God had given him and the gracious warning that God had given. But God had decided, and he made a covenant with Noah, say, I will not destroy the earth again through water. But there is another judgment coming, and it will be through fire. Well, a little while later, just four generations from Noah, you've got Nimrod comes along. And he began building a kingdom that was a challenge to the sovereignty and the kingship of our Savior. And the account of the Tower of Babel is found between the story of Noah and the story of Abraham. Just to give you an idea of kind of a high-altitude overview of the book of Genesis. Well, the story of Noah ends in Genesis 9 with these words in verse 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and then what? He died. Well, chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis describe the generations we have of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jabeth. And then you've got the generations eventually led up to Terah at the end of chapter 11, who is the father of Abraham. And then the remainder of Genesis tells about Abraham and his sons and everything that went on to eventually the founding of Israel. So now to focus down a little bit narrower, in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12, we've got the account there that is recorded in Scripture for us that we have today that through the likes of Georg and others that are teaching people to read the Bible, they can read these accounts that have been preserved in God's providence. Well, back in Genesis 10, you've got Nimrod. He went out and he built two great cities of man in defiance of God. And those were the cities of Babylon, or Babel, and if you also recall, Nineveh is what Nimrod did. So, now let's get to Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. And here's kind of a following outline, and again, I'm not like John, I'm too lazy to do the PowerPoint, so you're just going to have to do it the old school way and listen to me. But uh, man's challenge is the first thing I want to look at, is verses 1 through 4. Then God's investigation, verses, or verse 5. And then finally, God's judgment, verses 6 through 9 there of of chapter 11. So let's begin with man's challenge, verses 1 through 4, and I'll read that again, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and tar for mortar. Then in verse 4, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the tip or the top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, it's no surprise, you know, Noah 
and his family, this group of eight, they all spoke the same language so they could communicate. So it's understandable that after the flood, the whole earth had one language in the same words according to verse 1. Well, Moses, who I believe is the writer of the first five books of the Bible, writing, you know, the human author, writing under the inspiration of the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, I think Moses writes there in verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And that area geographically, some of you might remember this from school, uh, that area has been identified as being between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in southern Mesopotamia, if you remember that, which was later called Babylonia and is what? Present-day Iraq. So that's the area that they were migrating to. And the phrase, this is interesting, in this you know little section, nine verses, that we probably all heard in Sunday school, but as we take time to really examine it, there, there's so much contained here. And part of what I want to do this morning is reveal the character and the works of God to you. But the phrase from the east, you know, we read that and that doesn't mean a whole lot to us other than a direction. could also be translated in the original Hebrew uh, as eastward. And eastward in the book of Genesis, if you go back and study it, always means away from God. And that's what Moses is trying to convey here through the Holy Spirit, is to understand that the people were moving away from God. Well, in verses 3 and 4, Moses goes on and he writes, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us let us build ourselves a city and a tower, and its top will reach up into the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And if you notice, as you're doing your Bible study, when words are repeated, take note of that. Well, twice in these verses, the people under Nimrod's leadership say to each other, come. And again, when you just read through that, it it doesn't seem to be much there initially. But commentator James Montgomery Boyce notes that In the account of the Tower of Babel, we see two different uses of the word come there, recorded in the historical narrative. The first was spoken by man to man, and it was against God. And then we're going to see down in verse 7, the second was spoken by God to God against man. And we'll see how this plays itself out, you will, in God's sovereignty and his wisdom. Well, the Bible... God's word also has a third use for this word, come. You can think of those probably come, which is an invitation extended by God to man, for man's good, for man's benefit. Recall what God says in Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together. And it goes on and says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Recall the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then the Holy Spirit says in Revelation 22, verse 17, Come, 
and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So what happens when we respond to God's gracious calls to come? We find that our sins are washed away, our burdens are lifted, and our spiritual thirst is quenched. Well, there's a few other things worth noting just alone there in verse 4. First, the, the people wanted to build a city. God didn't direct them to build the city. No, the, the people themselves decided that they're going to build a city for themselves. And it was not to be the city of God as Jerusalem would be. Instead, it's going to be the city of man. And I like what Matthew Henry said about it in his observation. He said, what a difference there is between men's building and God's. When men build their Babel, brick, that is something made of mud and tar, are their best materials. But when God builds his Jerusalem, He lays even the foundation of it with sapphires and all its borders with precious stones. Well, second, the people wanted to make a name for themselves. They were focused on their own reputation. They were focused on their own glory. But it was not only a desire for their own reputation and recognition and to establish a legacy. It was also a desire for self-autonomy, to be separated from God. We will not have this man to rule over us. You recall that from the New Testament. Things had not changed. And they were going to do all this without the help and direction of God in their building project. They didn't want anything to do with God. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And in the end, they they did get a name. (laughs) But it's not the great name they wanted because their name was what? Babel. Which means confused. They are indeed remembered by those who came after them. And even today we remember them, but they are remembered for their folly and for their challenge rather than their greatness. You know, this is really just an account or a story about human pride, human pursuit, human achievement, and a desire ultimately to become like God's. Just like when Adam and Eve, they disobeyed the word of God. They believed the lie of the serpent. They ate of that forbidden fruit. Their way of thinking and even modern man. Who needs God when you can build a tower to heaven? Or apply modern technology in order to live forever. You know, this, of course, historically was not the only structure ever built for human glory. 
pharaohs, Mayan and Aztec kings all built pyramids in their own honor. Kings and queens of Europe built expansive grand castles and palaces. Universities in our own country are named after their large contributors. Mansions, skyscrapers are named for their owners and builders. Nothing new. Man wants to put his name on something, a legacy. He wants to be remembered to show how great he is. And see if you find this hard to imagine. And I know a lot of people do today that I talk with. (laughs) Can you imagine a world where individuals or families or groups or nations focus on accumulating wealth and power? Where they want influence? They want control over your life and pursuit of their own personal greatness. They want godlike status, all while rejecting the one true God. Is that hard to imagine? Does anyone pay attention to the Davos group that meets in the World Economic Forum? They openly tell you this is their goal and agenda. By 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. Prepare for that central bank digital currency they're wanting to unveil this summer to put in your wallet where they have control over everything you buy and sell. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) This is not far-fetched technology or science fiction. This is their intent. But our God is controlling over all these things. So there's no reason for us to fret or worry. And I'm going to show you how God dealt with this, and he'll deal with these people the same today. But even we as the redeemed, we're, we're often too quick to forget the source of our abilities and strength. You know, fallen man is too quick to claim all the credit and recognition for his achievements. Too often, human achievement is for the few at the expense of the many, the elite and the poor. It's so rare in human history, a simple thing that we all take for granted of having a middle class. It's one of the things they're wanting to destroy. And rather of having people dependent on God, they want us dependent on them. If you study history, particularly European history, you'll see how the lords, it was basically the lords and the serfs. We live in amazing times. Simple man is too invested in making a name for themselves rather than giving honor and praise to God who alone is worthy to be praised. The nature of fallen man. Again, a lot of these human achievements benefit the few at the expense of many. Just think logically and rationally about what you're being told in the propaganda that you were bombarded with every day. Global warming. The seas are rising. 
We're all going to be underwater unless you give us more of your money. And don't drive those Suburbans around. While you look at Davos when they meet over there in Switzerland, nothing but 2,000 private jets all driving large black SUVs for the elite. The seas are rising, yet the elite continue to buy beachfront property. That doesn't make much sense to put millions of dollars into property if you really thought they were going to be underwater. But God's word, my point is, leads us into the truth. It helps us develop a biblical worldview of what we're being bombarded with, all the lies that we have been told that are every day. What was three years ago considered conspiracy theory is now proven true. And again, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? It used to be about six months. Now it's about two hours because of technology, both good and bad, in order to challenge what people are saying. And these resources are available through technology and the Internet. So the third observation from this section is that people wanted a new religion back then. You know, that was the purpose for a tower with its top to reach into the heavens. Martin Luther noted that the words... Its top in the heavens should not be applied to its height alone, but rather should be seen as denoting that was going to be a place of worship. When we were in Israel, we were at one point at the Temple, of, uh, the Temple Mount. And the guide, the Old Testament professor that was leading us from masters at that time, pointed off to the hill of the high place over there where the sacrifices were made and where the Sanhedrin and others would uh, uh, meet and plot and scheme against Christ. Guess who occupied that high territory today? The United Nations. <laughs> Some reason they like high places in order to meet. Another commentator stated the intent behind the building a tower with its top in the heavens was to join or displace God. And this is typical of every man made religion in the world. Man determines that he wants to join or displace God or become a God, be like God. And so in his arrogance and his self-sufficiency, he builds his own religion that he believes will connect him to God. And people do the same exact thing today. They basically are idolaters. They construct their own view of a God that they're comfortable with, one that they can fully understand. They want to put God in a box, a God that they're willing to worship, a God that behaves as they believe he should behave in order to be right or connected with him. Every religion in the world today has the same basic feature. That is, how can people reach up to God? 
what must I do? What work-oriented thing can I do to reach up to God? But they're misguided. Their mind is at enmity with God. They're walking in darkness, as the Scripture reveals. Many are, are wearing themselves out and attempting to do good work so that they can reach up to God. And listen to me closely as I tell you this. This is the essence of the good news that we proclaim. The gospel is that God came down. Not that we have to go up. God came down to us in the person of his son. Who left the glories of heaven. God with us. He sent down his own son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to himself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Completely the opposite of any man-made worldly religion. Well, how did God respond to the challenge of these men building this great tower for themselves? So the second part in verse 5, I'm God's investigation Okay, you're going to challenge me. Let me investigate and see what's going on. I love this section here, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Doesn't seem like much there till you think about it a little bit. You got the tower's top, which they thought was reaching up into, up in the sky, up to the heavens, where they thought God dwelt. However, this is, this is the Almighty that they're thinking about. This is whom Isaiah declared in chapter 40 and verse 22. He said, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This is the Almighty. And these men are challenging him. And here the satire, if you will, peaks. Here in verse 5, where you've, you've got this picture of the Almighty. He, he must come down. Not be, He's coming down not because he's, he's nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height. And their work is so tiny and insignificant in comparison to that. And you can see the great vastness between a holy God and sinful Man, in comparison to God, the Holy One, the tower was so minuscule. It's as if God had to stoop down on his hands and knees to see it. That's what he thinks about man's achievement. The psalmist says of man's challenge to God's sovereign kingship in Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And the scripture says God will not be mocked. So God comes down to see what they were doing. He investigates it. And then in verses 6 through 9, he brings his judgment. And the Lord said in verse 6, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they plan to do will now be impossible for them. And some people make a mistake on how they view and interpret this passage in its application. 
They make a mistake of thinking that God, in, in putting a stop to the construction and building of, of the tower, was trying to protect himself against the ingenuity of the people of Babel. I've read commentaries that say that. But of course, we know that's not true. God is not threatened or challenged by God or man's scheming and plans. Even the greatest of human achievements are no threat to the God who created all things and continues to preserve and govern all things by the power of his word. This is the nature and character of our God. We need to have these things firmly planted in our understanding so our worldview is shaped by these things so that we don't live in fear. We don't live in discouragement or despair. Regardless of what the spirit of the age is promoting or doing around us, God is still in control of these things. He will not be mocked. So God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand another speech. Now it's God's turn to say, come. <laughs> and it was said to us in the plural. One of your proof texts there for a Trinitarian view of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's going to go down there. They're going to go down there and they're going to confuse their one language. And give them multiple languages. This is an act of God's righteous judgment on sinful people. And yet, in light of this judgment, there's still an element of mercy and grace. God doesn't just confuse the language of the people in order to protect himself. He does it in order to protect them. It's not that they are threatening him with building this tower. They're threatening themselves by giving themselves over to corruption, degradation, depravity, rebellion against God. They're gathering all the vast resources of their culture and their society and their people in order to degrade themselves. And God knew their self-autonomy and self-sufficiency would only further harden their hearts against his word and his truth. When God says nothing they plan to do will be impossible, he means there will be no limit on their capacity for (laughs) self-destruction. And now they talk as if we're on the brink of nuclear war. Man's technology, again, he doesn't need to use a rock and a stick. He's got thermonuclear weapons on intercontinental ballistic missiles that can wipe out civilization as we know it. They're openly talking about that. I believe there's forces that are actually promoting that. We'll see. God's in control. God's judgment here is in fact a way of putting a check on their rebellion. 
God's graciousness, he's holding them back from further corrupting themselves. This is definitely a judgment, but it's also an act of mercy and judgment. And Moses writes there in verses 8 and 9 as we wrap this up, and he says, So, <laughs> the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God dispersed these people from, from there over the face of all the earth. And you remember God had told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and Noah said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9, 1, after the flood. People didn't do that. But instead of filling the earth, the people congregated and conspired against God. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all their earth so that they would obey his command and accomplish his divine will. No man can thwart the purpose of God, the scripture says. He knows the end and the beginning. His word goes forth and it will accomplish what he sends it out to do. And think about this. Although that the confusion of that language at Babel was a judgment, it's also an example of our God using judgment for his own glory. Well, how do you, where are you getting that from? Well, just think. <laughs> As a result, the redeemed out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and kindred, through the four corners of the earth as God gathers his elect, are now able to praise God with a thousand tongues. <laughs> you ever think about where some of that comes from? Nimrod's tower never succeeded. And Babylon is identified in Scripture with opposition to God. Well, there's a few things I think that we can learn from this. Comfort our souls, give us hope, give us courage, give us strength. First, all attempts to create a one-world language are doomed to failure, as are the attempts create a one-world government, which is, again, openly, actively being talked about right now. It's been going on for a long, long time. They're at the point they don't even care anymore. <laughs> they just boldly tell you what they want to do, but God, as I said, he, he scoffs at this. But God has, you know, he intends for humanity to exist in nations and to have many languages and cultures, each reflecting his glory in unique ways. Man's not going to thwart that. You know, in the sense of technology with the Internet now, you can talk to people just about anywhere in the world. News is almost instantaneous. 
even get on there and they can translate from one language to the next in order to communicate. But this is not going to stop God's word from going forth or from the advance of the church as God's ordained it. And again, some of these technologies could be very helpful. And they have been. We benefit from them. But because of evil men and wickedness and sin, these things are turned to evil purposes, to hurt people, destroy lives. You know, the Neuralink I talked about, you know, they're, they're talking about some of that could be helping Alzheimer's patients, people with uh, strokes, uh, paralyzed. That could be some good application. But anytime your brain is hooked into a computer system and someone else has got control of the computer system, I'm a little bit concerned about that. I'm a little bit concerned when someone's got control of the means of exchange and can turn off my money and program it for what I can buy and what I can't buy. It's a little concerning. (laughs) Again, these things are put forth. You know, vaccine passports were put forth is a way to control people and travel of movement. But that, that didn't come into existence. So just remember everything you hear and what's proposed doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. And if God ordains that, then the church will continue and will continue to proclaim the truth and stand against evil and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Well, God frustrates the attempts of the wicked to achieve unity. (laughs) That's why I'm not overly concerned about World Economic Forum and Davos and United Nations and all these other groups that would like to centralize power. God prevents the wicked from achieving unity. However, now this is our God's amazing while he blocks and destroys the unity of the wicked, he desires that we as the body of Christ would dwell and be in unity. Jesus prays for the unity of us. And when we act as one, nothing that we legitimately, according to his will, desire will be withheld from us, according to John's gospel and And think of this, a sign of the unity of God's kingdom. God transformed that judgment on those people back in Genesis into a blessing on the day of Pentecost by enabling all those people of those different languages and tongues to understand one another's language in the proclamation of the gospel. That's amazing how God works. It's in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. And what I want you to take away from this, God is the sovereign king. All authority has been given unto Jesus. Every other authority is limited and delegated, whether it's in the government, it's in the church, or in the family. It's all under the headship of and lordship of Jesus Christ as king. King of king and lord of lords. And our Lord will not challenge or tolerate any challenge to his rightful lordship. 
As I've said before, you don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord of everyone's life. And it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And he will judge righteously. And wicked men who have lied and cheated and corrupt and evil and wicked that have hurt people. My heart breaks for the human trafficking and what they're doing to these young children. That will come out. Just be patient. You will be amazed at the wickedness that dwells among us. But God's going to take care of that either in this life through righteous human judgment or God will deal with it one day unless these people repent. But through the proclamation of the gospel, they can confess their sins and turn from their wickedness and turn to Christ alone and find forgiveness. We need to remember that because we were without hope in this world apart from that. We've got to remember that our salvation and our security, our perseverance, that's all tied up in Christ alone. His my life. And that brings us to the, the Lord's table of why we do this every week, why we remind ourselves. It's a reminder of Christ taking on a body that was to be given for us, fully God and fully man. And that brings us to remember these things. We're told to do this in remembrance. And we're told to do this until he returns. How long that's going to be, I I don't know. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I hold a position. He can come at any time. Could be later today. But until the Lord chooses to that day and time that's been appointed, we pray that we would remain faithful and obedient and live for the glory of Christ in all that we say and do.